Across time, we know that every culture has its witches. And we know that they, well, we, are powerful healers, midwives, and connected to the natural forces of the universe. But some also call us lethal and dangerous. With Wicked Bodies, I've collaborated with a cast of intergenerational performers to make a work that welcomes audiences back to the theater. This is not just a dance piece. There's storytelling and video and incredible music and sound. With intimacy and spectacle, come, join the witches. Everybody needs protecting. Every witch has a story. In our last episode, Liz Lerman shared stories about her early years and her creative path as a choreographer, teacher, and as a lifelong practicing heretic. She also talked about hiking the horizontal, the critical response process, challenging the canon, the Heisenberg uncertainty, and how dance can help make the world a better place. In this episode, we'll hear about Wicked Bodies, her latest work exploring the ugly, the beautiful, and the sublime embedded in the age-old story of witches. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 4. Which witch are you? So, Liz, I've spent a good portion of the last few days immersed in Wicked Bodies, its conception and evolution over the last few years, and I have to say, what you have here is a powerful way to interrogate the structure of authority and the impulse to criminalize difference and things that are hard to understand, and not just in authoritarian dictatorships. So could you just tell the story of this journey and how you came to this idea of wicked bodies that has manifested as a work most recently on the stage of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco? You know, one of the theories that moved me was why is some knowledge erased, some knowledge celebrated, and some knowledge criminalized? And I'll just say that that act of criminalizing knowledge is, again, part of the vertical world. That if you really practice living on the horizontal, you can make distinctions. You don't have to make that person a criminal for thinking what they thought. But another thing I like to point out is when Christine Blasey Ford spoke at the Kavanaugh hearings, at noon, she was a hero. But by the end of the day, she was a witch. I mean, it didn't take but four hours for that to happen. When I came forward last September, I did not feel courageous. I was simply doing my duty as a citizen. I was not prepared for the venom, the persistent attacks, and the collateral damage to my friends and my family. I was not prepared to be physically threatened or to be forced out of our home for over three months. And if anybody's curious about it, just watch and you'll see the speed and what Kavanaugh and his people did in order to make that turn so fast is interesting. In my case, I'll just quickly say I was in Scotland. I was actually teaching critical response. I had an afternoon off. I went to the museum in Edinburgh. An exhibit was up called uh, Wicked Bodies, Witches, and something else. It was 500 years of drawings. And I like to say when I went in, I was not that interested in witches. Interested in women, yes. Bodies, yes. Older bodies, yes. All that, but not witches. But when I came out, I was like, I was inflamed, furious, crying. 
the, you cannot imagine the accumulation of these drawings, and most of them by men and many of them by men of the church, mostly from a Western perspective. It, it wasn't shamanistic, although I got into that with my research. But I went and found the woman who put it together, a woman named Deanna Petherbridge, and we had quite an interesting talk. The, the, her exhibit was moving on to the British Museum, where they had already told her she could not use the word misogyny. I mean, so, I mean, like, you just, what, you know, and, and to some extent, Bill, I even have my own question as to how much this piece will tour in part around terms of misogyny and or people's ideas about witches. But what turned out for me to be interesting in this was, among many things, is that, I, you know, I looked into all the history and every culture has its witches. Every time frame has its witches. Are they celebrated, erased, or criminalized? It depends. Often criminalized. Often. So what was that? And initially, I decided we would only do one story about the worst of it, which we end up using James I, the man who translated the Bible, who also was responsible for the death of many witches. There could have been any number of people. I picked him just because in rehearsal one day I had said, how can one person cause so much havoc? And then I realized this is a, two years into Trump, and I thought, oh, of course, this is how this happens. So that's why I picked James, although there could have been many people that we could have picked. But because of the pandemic, we, it took us even longer. So we moved among things over a period of five to six years trying to figure this out. And the thing that I feel I learned is that I desperately did not want to portray the witches as victims. And therefore, I had to work through so much of my own feelings about the nature of, say, being a victim as a woman, so much of what we were going through with racial reckoning and how horrific this has been, the long history, how do we contend with all this? All of us in the piece had to do this too. We all had to work through this. We needed all that time. So now if you come see it, well, there's just so much going on. We, it, one of the questions I asked was, well, how can the witches help you come back after the pandemic? So, and I decided that people wanted intimacy and spectacle both. Fascinating. So both intimacy and spectacle. How does that play out in the piece? So the first 20 minutes of the piece, you come into the theater and the witches are all there in your little pods and you get to tell stories and everybody's, what witch are you? And then there's some, all of a sudden the dancing happens all around you. And then eventually it turns into the spectacle of a pretty formal concert with lots of video and stuff. But it's really fun to work on that part. It's just, I really think it changes entirely what it feels like to be in the theater. Even a big theater like YBCA and Gamage here, you really can change it. With the, I mean, it's just such a buzz for the first 20 minutes. Everybody wants to talk to the witches. Amazing. So why do you think that is? Well, I think probably, like we said earlier, everybody's has a birthright of creativity. I think probably everybody has a birthright of what is beautiful about magic, about spells and bending the world towards something that you believe in, towards the idea of a coven where you're close to people, where you, you're close to animals, you have a right relationship to the planet. I mean, there's so many wonderful things. You, you understand the stars. You know, who doesn't want to be, to be in that world? And, you know, by the time the piece ends, I think the audience feels like they are in that world. Because the whole second act, each, of the, each person in the piece is the witch of something, the witch of blackness, the witch of revenge, the witch of in-between. And we've determined what the story is now is that every 500 years, the witches of the world get together and choose our next narrator. And 500 years ago, it was a white guy. Kepler saved his mom from being killed. She was a witch. 
and uh, New Shakespeare, all that. But he's clearly out of step, and uh, which is played delightfully by by Will Bond. <laughs> and uh, the witches bring forward not just who they are as people, but what the what would it be like if the narrative of our life was it's not just trauma that travels through generations, it's also love. I mean, how would it be different if that was our national narrative? And then, well, to me, there's a real sense of hope at the end, but it's really flimsy, but it's totally believable. And only the witches could do it. And maybe that's the best invention of this, is to me a tangible, maybe whimsical, but flimsy form of hope. And there's no reason why we can't have that, despite it all. I love that idea. Hope, you know, it's like so many things in our commodified world that have been materialized. But, you know, hope is not a destination. It's a state of mind that only has momentum when it's fed by tangible outcomes. It's the yeast of change. I think pretty much all forward progress has a yeast component, which is both hardy and vulnerable and has to be fed, you know, and has to produce both real bread and the mother, more yeast for the next loaf and the next loaf. You know, we live in a world that says, okay, job done. Close the curtain, close the oven. But it's not job done, is it? No. You get to rest, you can reflect, you can celebrate, but the job is not done. That There's always a next chapter that contains the next hard and hopeful yeasty question. I'm the kind of person that says, oh, no, job's not done. I mean, what the heck would I do with myself if that were the case? I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that as we both turn another year, Bill. Part six, no singular stories. So I have a couple of one-liners that I want to throw at you. The first is aesthetic equity. Uh-huh. Can you say something about that? Well, it's really critical. The easiest way I explain it is we could be a dance department at ASU that is a modern and ballet dance department that makes room for hip-hop. That would not be aesthetic equity. Or we could have aesthetic equity in which actually hip-hop breaking Afro-Latin forms, modern dance, if we decide to sustain it, would be equal. This means now we're on the horizontal again. We are definitely on the horizontal, and now everything has to change. The floors, the history classes, everything has to change in order to make that a truth. So aesthetic equity is a way of upending the canon from being vertical to being horizontal. And like I like to say about the canon, the canon is not just what's produced. The canon is all the decisions that get made to sustain those decisions. And what happens if you fight the canon? Well, those decision-making practices are defined as professional. This is how to be professional. Well, if you fight them, you're unprofessional. No, no. Aesthetic equity changes all that. So another thing you talk about that I think is related is cultural humility as opposed to cultural competence. Could you say something about that? This is my beautiful friend, Shumana Mandala, is the person who brought this to my attention. I think it is a beautiful way for, I'll speak for myself, for a white Jewish woman born in the middle of the last century to enter my relationships with my students who come from other cultures, with my neighbors, my colleagues. I wish I knew all that I could know about their histories, but I don't. 
And so, and I can study, but that won't make me know it. So humility seems to me a space where settle back, be gentle, be curious, assume you're not the only person in the world, and that not knowing is the best way to be. Something like that. Which leads to another quote from you. I can't find the story unless we find it together. Yeah. Which can sound like a pretty simple thing, but I know is the hardest part of the work. When they turned Hiking the Horizontal into an audiobook, I got to go to a studio and read it. And why well, I cried a lot. These beautiful young engineers, next engineers, they also they just kept saying, we got your back, Liz, it's okay. It's just bursting into tears. Here is a small excerpt from Liz's recording of that wonderful book. Hiking the Horizontal. This book is a personal history of ideas and actions that emerge from making dances. It is also a description of the dance exchange a place I think of as a think tank and action lab, a place that has been my home and home to many others since I established it in 1976. I wanted to record the events that led me to think and act in the world in a very particular way. I wanted people to understand that art is powerful, that dance can make a difference. I wanted to document ways of seeing and being that have the power to change the environments we live and work in and the encounters that we have with each other. The phrase, hiking the horizontal, is the most recent and encompassing terminology to express the underlying philosophy of my work. Before I found the words, hiking the horizontal, was a physical gesture. It took me a very long time to understand the full implications of what was so simply accomplished with my hands. But the movement came first as a way of explaining why I wanted to live in a non-hierarchical world. Imagine for a moment a long upright line that runs from top to bottom. At the top is art so separate from the rest of culture that its greatness is measured in part by its uselessness. Other characteristics arguably include emphasis on personal expression, crafting aesthetics, and a commitment to purity of form. At the bottom is art so embedded in its culture that no one thinks to call it art. Here reside sacred rituals, healing ceremonies, objects made beautiful by their functions, people meeting and moving through the stories and needs of the calendar of festivals. Or your perspective might lead you to put culturally embedded art at the top and arts for its own sake at the bottom. Either way, the forms of art are ranked from top to bottom according to a system of values. This is the kind of hierarchy of ideas that I grew up with and that continues to prevail in many worlds. Now imagine turning this line sideways to lay it horizontal. That way, each of these poles exerts an equal pull and has an equal weight. Of course, the line is not completely flat and the poles are often not equally heavy. It's more like a seesaw and that is why dancing and art making provide sustenance for the hike ahead. If we are lucky enough, we can actually take the long highway between the sometimes opposing forces. Thank you.
partly what would happen in that book is I would read a sentence like, okay, at the end, we had a week's residency, then we had the gathering and people shared stories. Okay. There's probably a million hours that went into all that. What is it that makes people feel like they can gather? Why would they come together? What story would they choose to tell? Why would they sit in a circle? Is this story they always tell? Are they willing to tell a story that they didn't tell before? Why would we share these stories? And what form is it going to take? Oh, wait, we only have 30 minutes. We can't tell everybody's stories. We're going to have to not tell everybody's stories. Now what happens? Oh, can I reframe your story? Oh, actually, I can't. May I? No. Can go home, check with your family. Is this okay with them that it's all right that this story is being told? It's like that and much more. But that particular quote comes really from Wicked Bodies, which is it became evident to me that in order for us to tell this story, each of the people committed to this five-year-long process was going to have to figure out which which they were and where were they in the story and then how these all went together. And it was interesting, Bill, because, again, it's not singular. It may be a single story, but it's not singular. No, it's not. And there are always story strands that go way back. And most folk, I think, understand at some level in those vulnerable moments when they give themselves permission to tell meaningful, untold, intimate stories that they need to get with their family, their community, their ancestors, suss out whether it's okay to share. And what happens when people go home and ask, we did a project in Japan and I was interested in these charm belts from World War II called the Sensenbara, where each belt had a thousand stitches and each stitch was made by another woman. So I arrived to Japan with this idea and I walked into an intergenerational group of people. We were going to work together and I said that, I'll help her. They got so mad at me. The young ones were furious. They hated Sensenbari and the old ones were embarrassed because, well, they were embarrassed. So anyway, I said, well, okay, before we change ideas, go home and talk to your families about it. Let's find out what this means to everybody. Well, whoa, the stories that came back, turns out that the women knew this was crazy, that they pricked themselves with blood, that they put their pubic hair in it, that they, I mean, all kinds of things that nobody knew. They were still mad at me. And there was still a section in the dance where they yelled at an American who thought that she could come over and tell him what to do. So that that didn't change. But the notion of what these things were, was it was really powerful. That's where I came up with it. Act one was protect us as we keep the original meaning of things. And act two was protect us as we change the original meaning of things. <laughs> That's a change theory. Those benedictions are the guardrails. It's not the only work, but you have to have those guardrails or you're not getting to act three at all. I really get that. And you know what, Liz? One of the most frustrating things to me in situations like this is I feel like humans get way out over their skis when they try to use their brains alone to solve problems this is like so those women in Japan. Every vexing question, every problem is stitched into a complex system of cause-effect, every solution too. Solutions rise up from the whole culture, you know, whole body, whole humble sense of being part of an interdependent world, right? So two more questions. First, what's sparking you right now? What are you really excited about? Oh, well, mostly everything. I know that's a funny answer, but I mean, I'm just so curious about what's going on around me, what my students are up to and 
what my daughter's up to and what I'm going to do next. There are a couple projects that I'm approaching. We'll see if they come into being. There's one I've been working on for a long time that you're aware of, the Atlas of Creative Tools, and what form that ultimately takes. Now, the Atlas of Creative Tools is a work in progress, right? There's a toolbox online that people can go to, but you want to take it further? You know, my obsession with tools and trying to create different mechanisms by which people can access creative tools, which I think can be used anywhere. It's envisioned as a digital commons to hold all these things that you and I have been talking about just now in the form of action-related things that people can do, but also mini lectures and all kinds of things that people can take along with them and also add their own to it. And I haven't been able to convince anybody to actually fund that at some level that, you know, so we'll see where that goes. What else is out there? Well, this thing I'm doing with a group of older choreographers, we're calling Legacy Unboxed, and we're just looking at the wildness of being this age and all the wild ways we want to be in the world and what we want to do about that and how we want to handle that. And that might relate to some questions of the Library of Congress and how the library holds its dance and theater stuff, which it holds in recreation. I mean, you can't find it. And it speaks to what you were just talking about. It speaks to an overly rational place that doesn't have any clue how to not only hold these things, but how to help people find them. And we may get involved in that. And if we do, I feel really excited for the very reason you said, when is the world going to like just wake up and realize we have a lot of these knowledge systems that could help? Yeah, absolutely. So what are three creative encounters you've had recently that have rocked your boat, that have been meaningful to you? Uh, Books, movies, theater? Well, I was inspired by the movie, she said, by the persistence, clarity, and the takedown that eventually occurred. That's, it's really, it's a really good movie. I am listening to the audible book, Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. It's incredible. She holds a mirror up to some things that are just really hard to listen to and see in the pictures in your mind. It's really good. And I continue to collaborate with my daughter on some of the things that she's making. The amazing Anna is a documentary filmmaker and journalist. She lives in Turkey with her partner who works for UNESCO and she works for Univision. And she made a little five-minute thing for the exhibit at YBCA that is like a dream. It actually relates to some of what we've been talking about, fear, about shape and momentum. But she used all these old pieces of footage from other dances together as if you lie down on a couch and it's pretty nice. She's working on a long-form film about a young woman who was four when she came into herself and needed to transition to become Maddie. And Anne has been with the family for not quite 10 years, but she's going to stay with the family until Maddie's 18. And it's an amazing story of a North Carolina family with where mother decided to become a lawyer in order to help support this girl's decision. And it's pretty amazing. So stay tuned for that one. Wow, it sounds like a long-haul effort, like her mom's work, (laughs) like Wicked Bodies. And Liz, so much of what you've been doing, ongoing and interconnected to one big story, art and life. It's been a treat and a privilege to catch glimpses of that story in this conversation. Thanks so much, Liz. It's so good to see you. Really great. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. And bye-bye and thanks to our listeners. And a reminder, please 
Check out our collections of past episodes that have been organized by subject and arts discipline and other ways on our website at www.artandcommunity.com under the podcast drop-down. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape blossom up regularly from the brilliant musical garden tended by Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org and our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of Ook 235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. And one last note. This episode has been 100% human. Human.